Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. A therapist can help you become a better problem solver. Get unstuck with BetterHelp. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash Greg. Start living a better life today. We've got a great show. Glory M. Lou is here. She's a college fellow in social studies at Harvard and the author of a fascinating new book, Adam Smith's America, How a Scottish Philosopher Became an Icon of American Capitalism. This is a really interesting book, like a total sweep of intellectual history about this, this kind of weird guy who Adam Smith was historically and his appropriation by various uh, political parties, economic schools of thought uh, throughout American history. Um, I learned a lot about, about him and also about like tariffs and... Just economic debates in the United States is a you know really interesting book and you know intellectually just dazzling that, that she was able to um, to do this so uh, fascinating conversation with her I'm excited to share that with you I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving I did I took time off from the podcast and from the five eight there will be a new five eight tonight however we're back uh, LB and I on the five eight tonight um, and it was good it was nice to rest. I watched a lot of football, which, you know, as you know, I like to do. Since since last time uh, I did a podcast, uh, Merrick Garland has, has actually done something. He appointed Jack Smith as special counsel to look into basically all of the various Trump crimes, which is, that's no small mandate because there's a just a shit ton of, of Trump crimes, right? And I don't know, you know, there was a lot of debate beforehand is garland going to do this is garland going to do that again you have people on twitter 
arguing that Garland sucks and that he's never going to do anything and that he's he's corrupt and he's inept and whatever. And then you have people saying, oh, no, no, he's all along. He's da, da, da. He's one of us. He's going to get to the bottom of it. And uh, I suspect that the truth is somewhere in the middle. But Garland himself obviously does not have the the uh, fortitude to see this through. He's outsourced this to somebody else. This guy, Jack Smith, was a prosecutor at The Hague doing like war crime stuff. And then he was in the public something or other at justice. He kind of has a mixed bag record, I think. But, you know, we'll see. Like everything else, it's we'll see. It may be that this guy comes swooping in and indicts Trump for the documents theft, which to me is an open and shut case. And not just me, I, you know, I, I said on five eight uh, two Fridays ago, you know, a lawyer friend of mine, trial lawyer guy, said this is this is easy. Anybody that passes the bar can win this case to prosecute. It's a one witness case. You ask the FBI guy, "Hey, did you find the stolen stuff?" "Yes, I did." Okay, end of story. So, is Jack Smith going to actually just come out and indict him right away for the obvious crime, or is he going to dicker around? I mean, that that's the question, and. Um, you know, we'll see. Uh, six months from now, if we're still having arguments about this guy on Twitter, I think it's safe to say that we lost. And, and it's just it's just another, you know, delay tactic, a stall tactic. But I remain hopeful because, you know, he's only been on the job for a little while. He's going to take some time, presumably, to get his sea legs. Um, and in that case, it's not even figurative because I guess he tore his ACL or something. and He's recovering in the Netherlands uh, while he's working. So I don't know. Jack Smith, Godspeed. Go get the bad guys, would you? There's lots of other horrible stuff, but I don't want to talk about horrible stuff right now. There's enough There's enough horrible stuff. I want to talk about Adam Smith and free markets and capitalism and economics and how this one, like, 18th century incel <laughs> somehow became the poster boy for Gordon Gecko and the, the Wall Street Sharks and all these guys because it's, it's kind of amazing how this kind of thing happens. And Glory Lou has written a book detailing how it happens, and it's it's pretty fascinating. So we're going to get to that. We'll be right back with Glory M. Lou. Are you looking for a way to transfer funds that's completely anonymous? Do you want to keep your assets in a place the IRS can't find them? Need an untraceable way to bet on the giants? Our new cryptocurrency can help. Hi. I'm Nunzio Siccarelli, president of the Bank of the Bada Bing, and I'm here to tell you about a cryptocurrency guaranteed to satisfy all your investment and fund transfer needs. Like Ethereum, it's completely anonymous, so you don't gotta worry about nosy FBI mopes poking around. Like Bitcoin, there's a finite supply, so it ain't gonna lose its value. But there ain't none of this blockchain bullshit. Not only that, but our product is backed by the full faith and credit of the USA. We call our cryptocurrency cash. Get yours today while supplies last. Cash! Available now at the Bank of the Bada Bing. Member FDOC. And now, back to the show. Lori Liu, welcome to the Prevail Podcast. Thanks for having me. You have written this book called Adam Smith's America, How a Scottish Philosopher Became an Icon of American Capitalism. Uh, it's really an impressive, uh, as we were saying before I turned the camera on, it's an impressive uh, feat, I think. I mean, it's very ambitious and 
the amount of, of research and reading that you had to do to, to get into this and tell the story and um, tell it across multiple centuries, I think is really impressive. So, you know, first of all, congratulations on the book coming out. I know it's your, your, this is your first book, yeah? Yes, it's my first book. And thank you for the very, very kind words. You know, in the Academy, sometimes people will say, this is an ambitious book. Kind of as like a backhanded compliment. No, I mean it. I, <laughs> but, I think it's, you know, I'm reading this. I'm like, it's nice how, how did she do this? Yeah, yeah, it's nice to hear somebody who actually means it nicely. Yeah, no, I I I mean it nicely. I'm not going to have you on my show to be like, hey, you know, let's 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 go through all the things you got wrong about Adam Smith because I don't, you know, I I'm not I like we said before. I'm an English major. I know I read a lot of books about finance and economics, so I'm not I, I'm not unknowledgeable, but you know, and a lot of people listening to the podcast are not. I don't think writing doctoral theses in at Ivy League universities on political economy. So we're, you know, we don't have to go to that level of of, <laughs> of the weeds. Um, but the book as I see it, okay, and maybe you'll 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 categorize it or, or characterize it uh differently. It's basically how this guy, Adam Smith, who was alive when the country, the United States was founded, um, wrote some things and has been appropriated as a uh, almost an avatar for certain kinds of economic theory and what those things are have changed over time. It sort of reminds me of how like George Orwell, everybody thinks George Orwell is on their side. You know, the the, the anti-fascists mm -hmm. are like, clearly he did not like Stalin. And the fascists are like, no, 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 he's one of us, you know, and, and, and I think Adam Smith, there's enough there that lots of different people can claim him if they want. And I think one of the one of the things about the book that's interesting is how you delve into the less the hardcore economic side in Wealth of Nations and more into the other stuff he wrote, which was intended to be more interdisciplinary. So do, do I have it right? Do you think that's a good characterization? I think you have it exactly right. Okay. I think another way in which we can see Smith's avatar-like nature, or as you said, kind of a mascot that everybody wants on their side is very similar to the Founding Fathers. Yeah. He gets founding fatherized. Um, there is a kind of reverence that's associated with his identity, with what he wrote, with what he set into motion. And then people invoke that, um, that authority saying, oh, you know, well, the founders believed this. Therefore, right. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I'm in the right. Um, and I think you see that a lot with Smith at a certain point in American history. Um, it doesn't start immediately. You know, the founders themselves read Smith. But they didn't really read Smith and go, oh, well, the father of economics, <laughs> the father of free trade capitalism said that our country should go in this direction. So therefore, we should follow my lead. They read him like a technical resource. But at a certain point in time, and this is where I kind of talk about when Smith gets sounding fatherized and why that takes on a kind of different intellectual authority and why he becomes so politically powerful. I think I think that's a that's a huge part of the story, if not the whole point why I wanted to write the book. OK, now. Before we get into the book, and there's a lot of things I want to talk about because it goes through history. I like books that sweep through American history, looking at it through a certain <laughs> lens. That's something that mm -hmm. I personally enjoy to read. Why were you interested in this subject in particular? Was it always some an Adam Smith thing? Because you 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 know you read a lot of stuff about this, obviously. So uh, what what drew you to the Adam Smith as a subject? So there's a short intellectual puzzle answer to that question, and then there's a slightly longer personal story that answers that question. The shorter answer to the story is I was really puzzled about the disconnect between Adam Smith, the avatar that we see in public political discourse, right? The Smith that's associated with free market economics, with conservatism, 
with libertarianism, um, the, the Smith we all know and love that's the invisible hand of the market versus the heavy hand of government. The difference between that idea of Smith and what people in my field in political theory and in history recognize Smith as, that is, as an Enlightenment moral philosopher who wrote on moral philosophy, who wrote on the history of law and government and jurisprudence and the intellectual history of science, like this incredibly complicated figure. That gulf was so wide. I just, I had to know, like, how did we get from A to Z? <laughs> and, yeah. and why is Smith such a powerful mascot? So that's the kind of shorter intellectual puzzle. The slightly more complicated, maybe more interesting personal story behind it is that um, I had started writing a dissertation prospectus in my what third, fourth year in grad school or so, third maybe. <laughs> and I was I was really interested in ideas about wealth and inequality in American intellectual history. And I wanted to write this big sweeping dissertation about the, the changing nature of ideas about inequality. Like what kind of problem is inequality? What kind of a problem is wealth? What kind of a problem is poverty? And how did the discourses around those ideas change? And I thought I was gonna write my dissertation on this, but I got like halfway through writing the prospectus and realized I just couldn't write that book. Like it was just impossible for me as a graduate student to write that book and, or, you know, the dissertation at that stage. Um, and I was having dinner with a friend and some colleagues. Um, it was it was a group of intellectual historians. My friend was presenting a chapter of her work on the reception of John Locke in America. And this light bulb went off in her story. Kind of Locke starts off as um, a moral exemplar and somebody known for his epistemology and then becomes known as life, liberty and property Locke right. um, from the second treatise. And I kind of went oh my God, like, I wonder if the same thing happens with Adam Smith. Like, why did he become primarily known as an economist rather than as a moral philosopher? And uh, one of the historians in the room who would become my advisor, Carolyn Winter, kind of looked at me and was like, that's a project. <laughs> and and I was like, I think I think I want to work on that question. And I, and I wonder if there's something there. So, you know, over a couple of weeks, I had talked to a couple other colleagues and friends because I was you know midway through trying to start a different dissertation project and that's like not something you take lightly <laughs> so yeah, sure. so I, I talked it over with a couple of friends and colleagues and I decided like no I think this is what I want to write about and that's that's kind of where it began wow well you you uh it, it <laughs> a was a project. dissertation project yeah. I think you get you get an a on um on the project so you start the book and I think every and you mentioned there this is always how these things have to start by talking about Smith himself the historical person mm -hmm. and you give a little biographical overview so for me I'm trying I was trying to remember as I was reading this what do I even know about this because I never took I took economics in high school I never took it in college I never I don't think I've read the wealth of nations or if I did I read like two paragraphs of it on like the AP test or something yeah and uh you know all i know is really just that book the invisible hand and that he's the guy that he sort of is capitalism in its purest form mm -hmm. i think i wrote some sort of song when i was in high school say talking about adam smith worship and in my mind that was you know the worship of capitalism so this is a guy and i wonder about his name i wonder if his name was weirder and less generic <laughs> if he would be as popular you know it's just one of those things um so who is this guy? You know, historically, who is Adam Smith? Where do I begin? Um, historically, Adam Smith is an 18th century Scottish philosopher. That's probably the most generic way to put it. You know, he, he grows up attending the Scottish borough school. He goes to Oxford. He's disappointed by his studies in Oxford. 
Um, he becomes enthralled with the works of the, the great philosopher David Hume. And he, he kind of falls into the orbit of some of the greatest uh, thinkers of the Scottish Enlightenment in the, I got to get my dates right, like 1740s, 1750s. Yeah. Um, and he becomes a professor of um, logic and rhetoric and moral philosophy at the University of Glasgow. So I think it's worth clarifying what those terms mean, right? Like, what does it yeah. mean to be a professor of moral philosophy? Um, when we think of moral philosophy today, we think of ethics. We think of trolley problems and we think of um, moral dilemmas. It's not quite what it was in Smith's time. In Smith's time, the distinction is really between moral philosophy and natural philosophy. Natural philosophy really being kind of the, the biological sciences, the physical sciences, the natural world, and moral philosophy being the human world. So to be a moral philosopher doesn't mean just studying ethics. It means studying the realm of the human, the realm of the social. And part of that is ethics. But the question that Smith is interested in is, is really one about human nature, um, not really about what we ought to do. There is that branch as well. But, it, it, you know, in his time, he's responding to kind of two big questions in moral philosophy. Um, is human nature naturally egoistic and selfish or is it benevolent and altruistic? And the second question is, is morality grounded in reason or is it governed is it grounded in sentiment and feelings and smith is trying to answer that question um, and teach it when he's teaching moral philosophy at the university of glasgow um, and when he writes the theory of moral sentiments so that's smith's first kind of coming out party if you will right the theory of moral sentiments is his contribution to this wider conversation that people in the 18th century are having about human nature and where our moral feelings come from. Also, as a personality, as a personality, he seems like he was kind of an absent-minded professor, oddball, kind of, you know, socially awkward guy, didn't like dressed weird, probably didn't brush his teeth very much, but everybody sort of <laughs> looked at him and was like, oh, this guy's really fucking smart like he's way smarter than we are like that <laughs> yeah. that was the sense i got reading your 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 bio about yeah him. Like, yeah 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 so he he lived a pretty solitary life yeah he never marries he lives with his mom <laughs> mm -hmm. i think he even says in his letters like i've never loved a woman as much as i loved my mom right and when his mom dies it's it's an incredibly heartbreaking moment like he almost never recovers from the grief of losing his mom and then yeah. losing his best friend david hume um, so yeah, he's he's kind of in his own little world. There's a lot of myth making around that too. I I do think part of the reason why we find these personality traits so fascinating is because we we do have we being you know the inheritors of what we want to call like a Western tradition in political and social thought. I, there's a little bit of this kind of hangover fascination with like lonely, weird, awkward, tortured geniuses. Yeah, I, and he totally fits that profile. He's you know I write about this in the in the opening prologue he's an enigma and he it's just like the perfect recipe for myth making um you know he he never marries he writes a bunch and then he burns yeah every awful. remaining manuscript uh, he burns his he burns his unfinished work and stuff that he had planned and talked about in private correspondence and then says no i don't want anybody else seeing this right and so that leaves this void to be filled about like who was this man what did he write about how do we make sense of his life from what he left behind it's such a great setup <laughs> 
No, I I also want to, it's so funny to me that, or ironic, I suppose, that, you know, we think of Adam Smith capitalist and you think of these like Gordon Gecko types who worship at the altar yeah. of this guy. And he's effectively an incel who lives with his mom. Like, it's funny, <laughs> you know, he's, if in real life they would hate him. Like, you know, yeah, and yet he, I don't he, know if I would go so far as to call him an insult, but yeah, he's, no, you know, joking. he's a lonely bachelor. Um, <laughs> he's, he's weird. And, and yeah, there's a lot of the lore is, is kind of secondhand ish about him being so absent-minded that he, um, kind of falls into a reverie. He gets lost in thought and then ends up like miles out of town, walking on the beach in his nightgown or something like that, or like taking a tour of a tanning factory and falling into one of the tanning pits. Um, as happens, you know, we've all yeah, done as, it. as one does when you are contemplating the division of labor and its wonders. Yeah, we have a here where I live near where I live. There's a, a, a an art museum called Dia Beacon, which has these huge art installations that are too big to exist in Manhattan. And one of them mm. is just like a pile of broken glass on the ground for some reason. <laughs> and um, don't take your like, you know, one year old there or you two. Yeah. <laughs> Really, the importance of like I could see that's not a good place for this guy to 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 be walking. He'd have glass in his in his heel, and all this kind of stuff. Um, is there any parallel to him today? Do you think? I mean, he it, looking out at the at the cultural landscape because now you know, as you say, this is that we have a fascination with these weird geniuses who are strange and do this stuff. Does anybody in the news now remind you of him, or is he just one of a kind? Broke the mold after? It's a good question. I can't think of anybody that comes to mind. I mean, there are probably some eccentric, single, <laughs> bachelor, white male figures out there with incredible intellectual prowess. I, I couldn't, you know, I I couldn't think, that, think of one either. So if it makes so, you feel any so, better, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think the other thing that, that the reason why I hesitate is because I think you know, Smith is so special because we can't do what he was able to do in the 18th century. And a lot of that has to do with the disciplinary fragmentation um, and separation mm. of intellectual labor, right? Smith was able to write in moral philosophy and contribute to questions about human nature and again, what we call ethics or moral psychology, as well as writing a book about political economy, which isn't just about kind of the behavioral microeconomic foundations of economic life, but also about political economy. It's about institutions and history and the ways in which we organize society in order to create the rules that govern exchange. Um, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find any one person in philosophy today or in political science today or in economics that that writes on all those things. Yeah. And, you know, the 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 remains of the kind of um remnants of what we what we can reconstruct of, of his ideas about politics and political theory, the lectures on jurisprudence, we have the student notes from his lectures on jurisprudence, but we don't have the book that he had planned. And so again, thinking about just the breadth as well as the depth of what he was writing on, like it's very hard to think of a single scholar today who can inhabit all of those um, realms of intellectual life. And a lot of that has to do with just the way the disciplines have evolved. And I think we look back at Smith and we go, wow, like what an amazing, you know, mind. Yeah. Because he was able to kind of traverse these territories very freely. And I do think he did do something special in the way he approached moral philosophy, political economy, political theory um, that 
you know, seems so capacious and integrated, you know, it's almost like there's something that we lost when we look back at Adam Smith. And I think that's a large part of the draw today, right? We we look back and we read this work and we think, wow, economics is so different today, or wow, moral philosophy is so different today, or political theory is so different today. How come we can't think like Adam Smith? Yeah. Well, it's, it's what interesting. Would it, what would it take? Yeah. What would it take to think like Adam Smith? It's interesting. I remember one of my professors in college saying that the last person who read everything, who was able to read everything, and by everything, we mean the Western canon, obviously, and not, you know, other yeah, things that yeah. we now have access to, was probably Coleridge. So that he's, mm-hmm. Adam Smith is in that time frame where especially if he's living with his mom and doesn't have anything else to do could theoretically have read everything that there was to read about you know all of the greeks and the and the you know the poets and the shakespeare and and whatever it was available he was he was there i think part of the problem with, with modern society which is both it's not even a problem it's both good and bad is that it's so vast there's so much content Mm -hmm. um high and low that no one person could ever possibly uh absorb it all you know, yeah. even like reading, but like I, you know, I love to read and it's hard to read books. It's just, there's so much news to keep up on and all this other stuff that it becomes, it's, it just becomes difficult. So maybe that's part of it too, is that his brain, you know, he was able to take in all of these great ideas without, you know, having TV. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking of what Carolyn Winter, who was one of my um, PhD advisors said about the 18th century. She She works on American intellectual history, um, especially the 18th and early 19th century. And she said, you know, part of the fascination with the 18th century is that this is the last great age of the polymath. And you think about people like Jefferson and Franklin in America, and I think, you know, Smith and many of the inventors that come out of England and Scotland at this time. Like it, it kind of is this, again, with the caveat of like, we should be wary of romantic nostalgia, but, but, um, I think there is something to that, that it is still an era of polymathism. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of the polymathism was wrong. You know, they they learn these things and oh, they're yeah. just wrong about everything. But but they yeah. try and they think that they, which also makes it interesting that they're, you know, even that, that it's attempted. So, okay, you mentioned political economy and you talk about it in the book too. So just mm-hmm. that and also the reception history. And these are two yeah. interesting terms that, you know, I can sort of, I can guess what they mean from context mm-hmm. in a sense, but God, yeah. just tell us what the, you know, quickly what the definitions are, what you, what you mean when you write those, those two terms down. Okay. So political economy, let's start with that one. Yep. Um, I'm going to give Smith's definition and then I'll give a generic definition as well as a couple other definitions to help us orient ourselves. So the way Smith talks about political economy, he says the science of political economy is a branch of the science of the legislator, meaning political economy is a part of politics, of actual statesmanship um, and doing the work of politics and statecraft. And its objects, its objectives are to enrich the sovereign, enrich the state, right? provide enough revenue for the state and provide revenue for the people, make sure the people themselves, the inhabitants, the residents, the citizens of that state are doing well enough. So that's how Smith talks about political economy. Um, The way I like to think about political economy is breaking down the kind of politics and the economics. So economics is about how we meet our needs. And politics is about the rules and the norms and the institutions that we create in order to meet our needs. And I think that that definition helps us kind of 
strip away some of our contemporary methodological um, predispositions to think that like political economy is about rational choice theory or um, using economic tools in order to understand political phenomenon. Um, or yeah, I think those are kind of those extra definitions that we get and how we see it playing out today in the in the world of political science and, and in economics. But um, I think thinking about political economy as a way of understanding how it is that we meet our needs, like our material needs, and the rules that we create and the institutions that we create, and also how we study history in order to understand kind of general principles, patterns, basically just like the relationship between society and its institutions and structures of governance and how it is that we exchange, how it is that we produce things, how it is that we consume things, how it is that we determine the rates of taxation. <laughs> um, that is political economy. I think the other way to think about it is like the economy isn't this freestanding abstract thing that we like to poke and prod and measure with all of these indicators, right? GDP, um, I don't know, pick your favorite, G GNP, right? The stock market, all these like very abstract indicators of this thing that we call the economy that's somehow separate from politics, right? The, yeah. the way rules are made, the laws that are passed, who's in power, how we elect power. Those two things aren't separate um, because it turns out that who we have in office and how they make laws shapes how the economy works and, and determines oftentimes how we interpret what the economy is doing, who is benefiting, who is losing. So I think that's how I think about political economy not the only way to think about political economy but um well that's again, what as, that's what yeah. we want today we want what you think about the political economy i don't care what other people think yeah, yeah i care yeah, yeah, what yeah. you think and what adam smith thinks so um <laughs> and then this this reception history yeah okay so reception history is a bit of a misnomer um i think reception sets you up to believe that like things are being passively received right like there's stuff out there, there are ideas out there, and they just kind of like float around and then they somehow like land in your brain and you receive them. Um, the way I think of reception history is um, really an act of interpretation of, of transmission and recreation and reconstruction. Um, so it's much more of an active process of creation and invention than it is a kind of passive one of things being received in their authentic or original form. So when I talk about Smith's reception, um, I'm not just looking at, oh, here's, you know, here's the wealth of nations. And uh, later on in, you know, 1930, we see somebody else quoting from the wealth of nations. That may in fact be the case that somebody's quoting from the wealth of nations, but I see it as a question about why are people quoting from the wealth of nations in that time? What are they trying to get yeah. out of it? What are they trying to produce? What are they trying to say? Um, so a kind of economics metaphor, appropriate economics um, analogy is about supply and demand. So you can think of, um, if we wanna understand the influence or the impact of a text, 
the wealth of nations with a theory of moral sentiments. There's a kind of supply side story, which might be the text itself is kind of supplying ideas that are incredibly important. And that's what causes it to endure over time and, and causes it to have mm -hmm. a lot of influence. The way I see it is it's, it's more of a demand story, right? What are the, what are consumers and readers demanding that draws them to that text at a particular time? So reception history for me is really looking at the context, the needs and the demands of specific readers and why they're coming to the wealth of nations and why they're coming to the theory of moral sentiments and what they're trying to get out of it. So that's how I think about reception history. Yeah, I was going to say context. I was I, I had that written down. Yeah. I was going to yeah, say because yeah, yeah. it's it 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 looks like it's providing the context, right? I, that supply demand thing is interesting. It's like we need an idea that that is going to um, founding fatherize, to use your your term, <laughs> yeah. uh, this thing that we want to do that's awful. Uh, let's find one, you know. And I, I don't know that it necessarily manifests in somebody's brain that way, but sometimes that's that's how it that's how it uh, yeah. turns out. So okay, I want to talk. I want to get into the book. Um, uh -huh. But before we do, we have to take a quick break. We'll be okay. right back with Glory Lou. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp Therapy Online. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash Greg. Start living a better life today. Do you get like overwhelmed with things to do? Because I do. I've got a lot of different things on my plate. I've got a lot of different jobs people I want to write back, emails I have to send, stuff I have to get done at work. And sometimes there's so many things to do that I get so overwhelmed that I'm like, ah, and I just want to crawl back into bed. Have you ever had that feeling? Because I know I have. I have all the time. And, you know, it can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode when faced with a challenge in life or something like that, just being overwhelmed with all the stuff that's happening. But when you learn how to find your own solutions, there's no better feeling. A therapist can help you become a better problem-solver making it easier to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or how small. So for me, you know, I, I started having BetterHelp advertise on my show, on my podcast here, many months ago, and I used it. I, I, I went to the site, I downloaded the app, and I, I, did the, I did the slash Greg promo code, and I was hooked up with a really good therapist, and he helped me. It was at the time of intense stress in my life, and uh, he really helped me work through it. You know, it was good to just get a hold of somebody that that kind of understood what i was going through and um feel heard get me started in the right direction i i think it's great i recommend it to everybody who asks one of my readers actually asked about it uh last week i said yeah definitely do better help it's wonderful i mean everyone deserves to feel their best better help makes it easier to get started as the world's largest therapy service they've matched millions of people millions with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100 online so you get all the benefits of in-person therapy, but it's more convenient, more accessible, and more affordable. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. Things aren't clicking. You can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. Couldn't be simpler. There's no waiting rooms. There's no traffic. There's no endless searching. I, I got hooked up with somebody really quickly, and I think that's one of the great benefits of, of BetterHelp is the speed with which you wind up talking to somebody. Because usually when you feel stressed out, when you feel in a moment of crisis, you want to talk to somebody sooner, not later. Again, great benefit of BetterHelp. So get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Greg. That's BetterHelp, BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Greg. 
Start living a better life today. Okay, we're back with Glory Lou. So again, the book, um, Adam Smith's America, uh, you kind of go through American history or key key moments in American economic history and look at how Adam Smith was used um, you know, during these arguments. So when the country's founded, I think the founding father thing is pretty obvious. It's interesting that the Wealth of Nations was also published in 1776, which mm-hmm. is, you know, it, it seems almost astrologically destined to be important to America. <laughs> but also at, at the same token, it's like he was alive the same time the founding fathers were alive. So they're not going to venerate him in the way that anybody else would because you know, he's just one of them, basically. He's just, he's in Scotland, they're there. Yeah. You know, they're probably related if they go back to genealogy enough. Um, It's only later on that this becomes kind of a thing where, um, you know, people take positions based on Adam Smith and Mm -hmm. what he might mean. So um, one of the things in your book that's that's fascinating is this, this period of time, sort of right before the Civil War, into the Civil War and after, Mm -hmm. and the fight between uh free trade and tariffs and and what that means um yeah. because and, and and how it it was confused and and conflicted so i want to read a uh a part of the of your book here um and then i just want to talk about it because i yeah, think this yeah. i think it's really interesting um okay the idea of free trade in america during the antebellum decades was thus riddled with contradictions for the cotton south free trade was essential for the profitability of the unfree labor in the region tariffs were seen as a tax on slavery itself for cotton and woolen manufacturers in the north protectionism provided an opportunity to break into an emerging home market but it was a market whose primary customers were those seeking to outfit enslaved bodies in the cheapest way possible thus at stake in the tariff debates was more than the specific amount or goods subject to taxation the very morality and political viability of expanding a system of political economy that depended on slavery lay at the heart of the tariff debates. So that had never occurred to me before, just that, you know, tariffs seem really dry and boring to pretty much oh, yeah. everybody. But, you know, to 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 draw that connection, I think, is 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 really fascinating. So t- talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, and the passage that you read there, um, I, I just want to like give a shout out to some of my colleagues um, in history, like Seth Rockman and others who I I quote um, for really opening my eyes to just how interconnected trade debates, slavery, and capitalism are in this period. Um, You can't avoid it. And I think what you mentioned earlier about kind of how when we think about tariffs, we think like, oh God, this is just so dry and so technical. It's just about a bunch of taxes on like cans of meat (laughs) or um you know linens coming in and out of the american border that is um it's not inaccurate but what we have to appreciate is that during the 19th century especially before the civil war you cannot disentangle the power of the federal government to tax a good on a part of the American economy that is thriving because of the presence of slavery. And so talking about tariffs basically is another way to talk about slavery without talking about slavery. You know, like there's that- What we would call a dog whistle almost, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like 
tell me you're trying to talk about X without talking about X, right? <laughs> right, right, yeah. And, and I think the other reason why the tariffs become such um, uh, a kind of hot button issue is not just because it's about, it, it's a way to kind of talk about slavery without talking about slavery, but it's also a way of defining what the national economy is and what it should look like which of course you can't separate from the different regional and sectional differences in the American economy. Again, the cotton South relying on exporting huge cash crops, which of course are being produced by slaves and the North really the center of manufacturing and um, kind of more, more industrial products, but they're interconnected. And so when you see legislators talking about kind of what the national economy is they're often trying to make a claim about like their way of producing consuming and trading being the vision for how the rest of the country should look and again the stakes are really high because the u.s is continually expanding right they're having decisions about what states should be admitted as slave states or not how westward expansion is um, kind of constantly raising this issue again. So to talk about the national economy and use the language of political economy allows people to use a language that seems objective (laughs) and seems scientific, but, but wield it almost as a weapon to basically say our way of production, consumption, and exchange is the way that the rest of the nation should follow. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, you know, because there's this idea that that the early abolitionists, you know, bound up the, the free trade with abolitionism. You know, mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. and free trade, free labor. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the whole thing. And um, was it Henry Clay was the big, the big uh, tariff guy. Um, uh-huh. You know who who made interesting argument, and that that's another thing that that's interesting in the book. Apart from the Adam Smith stuff, is the to me tariffs are so just seem so dumb. But uh, you know <laughs> the the uh, you know when Trump came in and started talking about tariffs, it's like, dude, we figured this out a hundred years ago. Go back to college, man. Yeah, but, I remember those moments when like all this stuff in the news is about Trump and tariffs, and I was like, I never wanted my research to be relevant. <laughs> <laughs> There's you know the fascism scholars that have been on my show feel the same way. Uh, yeah. But but <laughs> you know the uh, and yet. Clay makes good art, you know, his arguments were good, I think. I don't know that they were mm-hmm. correct, but I, I mm-hmm. you know, what he was arguing is, oh, if we do this, we're we're keeping it more here and it's actually going to save more jobs and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and yeah. At least there was more thought to it than yeah. um, just isolationism and fear, which is, you know, the general yeah. just. Yeah. So I want to say two things about that. I think one thing that makes the language of political economy so compelling and so powerful is because it is a form of reasoning. Um there's there's kind of causal logic that is intuitive and oftentimes correct not correct all the time but oftentimes correct right bears it out in in history and in, in in other empirical studies so so political economy is powerful because it is a is a form of reasoning but it's also powerful because there are these kind of competing forms of of nationalism involved so so like what I was saying earlier about how 
different legislators from different regions will say, um, no, we want lower tariffs <laughs> because you know the, the national economy is one that flourishes on free trade. Um, or people from the North saying, no, 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 we, we need to protect American interests and American manufacturing. I mean, we hear this line today, right? Sure. That like buying American and and protecting American jobs, these logics get really ingrained in the 19th century, uh, especially after the Civil War. You see this very, very strong line being drawn between Republicans being the party of protection and Democrats being the party of not really free trade, but like slightly less, (laughs) slightly less protection, right? Um, Tariff reform, maybe. And one of the one of the dominant ideas, and this gets into kind of the fear mongering that you brought up, is this idea that that like free trade is actually a conspiracy. (laughs) It's it sounds good. The logic seems good in the textbook. Adam Smith made it sound wonderful. But actually, free trade is this British conspiracy to like open markets everywhere. And then they're just going to dump their goods and undercut American manufacturing, undercut American jobs and immiserate, um, immiserate our country. So we have to protect ourselves by not falling for this like conspiracy of free trade. That's that's a pretty powerful and and prominent line of reasoning that's taken up throughout the 19th century and i don't think it's gone away (laughs) no it seems very QAnon to me but it it just replaced the word globalist for british and you have the same sure sure exactly the same kind of idea um getting back to your book now okay so there's this (laughs) we have this idea of adam smith is this this great free trade guy so obviously if adam smith were around he would want no tariffs at all you know that's kind of the thinking then okay <laughs> this is where it flips i think this is this is mm-hmm. really great um republicans and their protectionist allies harnessed adam smith's authority to their own political advantage too gentlemen the markets of the world will not come to us republican congressman james o'donnell of michigan proclaimed in 1888 we must rely upon the best market in the world the home market The market created by the people of our land, I repeat, the best market of the world, he continued. This was more than a rallying cry of economic nationalism. From O'Donnell's perspective, it was also an opportunity to delegitimize the ideas that free traders so heavily relied on. Remember that the the true saying of the great apostle of free trade, Adam Smith, who in his wealth of nations make this admission, which you all overlook, O'Donnell declared, quoting the following passage from Smith's magnum opus, Whoever tends to diminish in any country the number of artificers and manufacturers tends to diminish the home market, the most important of all markets, for the rude produce of the land and thereby still further to discourage agriculture. So that's them flipping it completely and re and claiming Adam Smith as, as one of their own, which I find really Yeah. Cool. Yeah. 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 Um, and you see that over and over again. Um, I call it the like even Smith said so logic, right? <laughs> that like, oh, you think you think Smith, the apostle of free trade, is on your side, but you missed this part where he said dot, dot, dot. And, you know, without getting into the, like, actual policies, what I want to draw out on that passage and kind of one of the themes of the book is, like, why is that form of argument powerful? Why why was this, like, a technique that people (laughs) were able to use? It's because they're appealing to a recognizable authority and that appeal to an authority somehow serves their 
political position or or in the passage that you just read right they're they're trying to say you free traders didn't get the logic right you misread adam smith your authority and so it's a way of undercutting the opposition as well and and the other thing that's interesting about this period this is like late 19th century i forget in, in um 1888 yeah so like by this point the wealth of nations isn't really like the standard textbook of economics right people aren't reading smith to figure out what policy they should actually use they're not reading it like economic theory anymore but it's still important because it's considered the foundational textbook or the the kind of foundational work or the origin point for the field of economics so when when people are like quoting from the wealth of nations or they're quoting um or, or they're just invoking adam smith they're not interested in like the actual content of his ideas and more in the power of his name right like the fact that you can just appeal to smith says more about smith's iconic status than it does about whether you actually understand what smith said in 1776 right it's the same i mean this is a rhetorical device that everybody that they use all the time democrats are constantly saying even ronald reagan said you know yeah yeah exactly and or you know it says in the bible that you know, where does it say anything in the Bible about Jesus not liking gay people? Because they in there, you know, right. that kind of thing. <laughs> the, the, you go back yeah. to the authorities and, and and this and that. And Orwell is another one, you know, Donald yeah. Trump Jr. But so Orwellian. What are you talking about? You don't even know what that means, man. <laughs> uh, so, you know, um, it's it's interesting, the idea of, of claiming this as an authority. And then, you know, I think it works. I think people, you know, stop and are like, oh, well, you know, Adam Smith said it's got to be got to be true you know we can't uh, <laughs> and and very very few people will take the time then as now to actually read the damn thing and figure out if it's if it is so or if it's so what they you know what they actually mean yeah 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 and even if you do go the route of like oh let's crack open the wealth of nations book four and figure out what smith is saying when he's talking about the unreasonableness of bounties and restraints and the restrictive policy of the commercial uh of of kind of commercial policies in England, like, why are you, why, why do you need to figure out what Smith said? Right. I, I asked that rhetorically because like, yeah. I've spent a lot of time figuring out what Smith said, but I'm jumping ahead of myself because this is something I raised in the epilogue of the book. Like, I think Smith is one of these figures where his afterlife has become so much more powerful than his actual life that yeah. we often like, don't realize why are we trying to understand what, like, why do we care about what Smith said in his time? I'm, I'm trained as an intellectual historian. I think it's interesting, but I think there's, there's more than just kind of purely historical, you know, slightly more pejoratively antiquarian interest in understanding what Smith said in 1776 about trade. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that like for so long, we've kind of believed and assumed that Smith must be talking about ideas and has ideas that like transcend his time. Right. And so there's got to be something that's still relevant today. Even if we try to understand Smith in his own time, there's got to be something that travels across time that's relevant for us today. Yeah. It's the same thing like the founding fathers. Like we, you know, the, yeah, the, exactly. the, the whole originalism of these justices, which is bullshit anyway. That's just an excuse. But they, well, what <laughs> would, you know, what would, uh, 
you know, the fathers thought of the, well, you know, these are all rich white guys who own slaves, most of them. So maybe Mm -hmm. don't, I don't care (laughs) what they think. They they wouldn't let women vote. They were, you know, they killed the natives and enslaved black people. And maybe they're not the moral arbiters of of all right and wrong. I'm just going to throw that out there. Right. Yeah, in, in Smith's defense, Smith did not own slaves. He was very, very anti-slavery. He thought it was morally abhorrent, economically efficient, inefficient, um, among many other things, anti-imperialist. Yeah, um, all of the things that that now people that think they like him would like. You know, I think it, it it's flipped so much. This is what makes the book so fascinating, the way that this mm-hmm. stuff vacillates. And you, you think if this guy suddenly were to come back to life and look around, he'd be like, what What are you talking about? But you've completely yeah. misread everything that, that uh, you know, that I'm talking about. So speaking of misreading and uh, everything mm-hmm. that he was talking about, we have to talk about the Chicago school now. Um, right. So <laughs> the, the, this is, um, you know, guys like, what was it Hayek? Is that how he says his name? Hayek? Friedrich yeah, Hayek. Friedrich and, Hayek. And Milton Friedman and, and these sort of purists, I would say, the, these um, you know, free market purists um, who were, for whatever reason, you know, just almost randomly at, around Chicago at the University of Chicago um, at, you know, in, in the 70s, 60s and 70s. Um, and then applied their theories to Chile with horrifying results. So uh, talk a little bit about who these guys are and and what they did and how it relates to to Smith and how they they kind of appropriated him for their their use. Yeah. So the Chicago School plays a pretty big part of um, the story in my book. And what you said about going to Chile and kind of wreaking havoc there, um, Friedman is not, I don't think any of the, the, the guys that I mentioned are part of the Chicago boys, but there's a lot of stuff about yeah. kind of how the Chicago method gets exported, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so I'm going to kind of rewind the clock a little bit mm-hmm. and start in the earlier part of the story when I talk about the Chicago school, which is right after the Great Depression. Yeah. So right after the Great Depression, economists across the country um, are kind of freaking out. They're They're having a come to Jesus moment, if you will, right? Like, mm-hmm. what is going on? How did we not predict this? How come we can't explain it? And how do we explain it? And it is not a good look to try and defend free market capitalism after the Great Depression, right? <laughs> Nobody really wants to do that. But there are a few people who are still saying, well, actually, I do think there is something worth rescuing when it comes to the logic of kind of liberal market societies. Um, again, at the time, the dominant mode of thinking is is really about like, you know, Keynesian managerialism. How do we manage the national economy? How can we have kind of rule, uh, not, not rule, like formal political rule, but like, how do we tinker with the economy with a room of experts? That's the kind of like Keynesian approach to thinking about the macro economy. And so thinking about the power of free markets um, and and the way in which um, markets can be uh, like efficient allocators as well as like automatic correctors um, is a, a, um, it's an unorthodox, it was a heterodox idea still after the Great Depression. And even into the kind of post-war period, post-Second World War period. But Chicago becomes one of the like incubators in the United States for free market thinking. And among some of the most 
prominent characters are the people you mentioned, Friedrich Hayek, George Stigler, Milton Friedman. Now, I think what's interesting is that they're they're um they're both like <laughs> I like realize I'm like I skipped over a bunch of stuff. So so what's interesting about these three figures is that they kind of take free market thinking to the next level. Yeah. And I realize I'm saying that without telling you what the first level is. So again, like kind of going back to the like 1930s and 1940s in the Chicago school, you still have a like diversity of voices and views about like free markets and, you know, wh whether they're good or bad and, and the, the limits of free markets as well. So people who I talk about in the book are figures like Jacob Viner and Frank Knight. And they're, they're really seen as kind of these like Chicago heavyweights. They, they really, they, they are kind of backbones of the Chicago economics department in terms of training graduate students and also like anchoring the kind of pro market views, but they're not super extreme. They're very tempered and, and quite balanced. This is also a period where they're still teaching a lot of the history of economic thought and history of economic theory. And so they're looking to Smith and really wrestling with the complexity of Smith's ideas. Jacob Viner writes this very famous essay called Adam Smith and laissez-faire and says like, Adam Smith is not a doctrinaire laissez-faire person. Um, he's incredibly complicated, right? He thought government was good and he thought government was bad. He thought markets were good and he thought markets were bad. Like it, he really wrestles with the complexity of Smith. So that's the kind of like early Chicago wave where you have people who are ready to defend free markets, but in a very tempered way. And they're they're willing to kind of wrestle with their problems. By the time we get to like Hayek, Stigler and Friedman, the, the free marketeering, if you will, is much more strident and it's much more narrow. And it's become it's become very like scientific, if you will. Right. They start using the language of kind of individual rationality, this idea of um, kind of economic models are only good insofar as they can predict. Um, and the the idea that like the the invisible hand, right, one of the kind of most, if not the most famous image from the wealth of nations yeah. is the price mechanism. It is a way in which prices signal what consumers want to buy and what sellers want to sell. It allocates efficiently without central direction or planning, and everybody is made better off because they're just they're just following their own private interests, right? So it's a descriptive metaphor for the price mechanism. So it's like kind of scientific and objective in that way. And then the 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 next level I kind of talked to is somebody like Milton Friedman, who not only has the like grounding in his scientific prowess as an award-winning economist, but is also this like incredibly powerful public intellectual that says like, it's not just that the market works in this way. It's that the market works in this way that's better than the government. Yeah, um, yeah. And and that's where we get that, that the, the politicization of a lot of Smith's ideas, like self-interest, like the invisible hand. Um, and Friedman becomes one of the like kind of loudest and I think most important spokesmen for this idea of aligning Adam Smith with the kind of politics of free enterprise in the 1970s and 1980s, right? So he's on this program called Free to Choose in 1980s, wearing a Smith tie. <laughs> and <laughs> you're shaking your head. This was like an incredibly powerful image and he has it in multiple colors. And, and he's 
talking about how Adam Smith's like greatest discovery was the invisible hand and how it worked and how the invisible hand of the market enshrines and protects your freedom right like this all this this becomes about um freedom as non-interference with your freedom to choose yeah. that's like the most important thing that comes out of Friedman's reinterpretation of the invisible hand right it's it's freedom as free to choose and freedom from government interference with your ability to choose and the market gives you more choice and therefore more freedom so that I think is like the culminating moment in my story in my, in my version of the kind of Smith reception is that like Friedman takes the kind of scientific economic version of the invisible hand as price mechanism a way of describing how markets work and then makes it this like manifesto about about freedom of choice and freedom from government interference with your choice i i think it's very similar i mean it's the, the opposite end of the spectrum but it's similar to like stalinism in a sense or marxism where they're stalin and marxism where they're you know here's the original text which we venerate and when we try to apply it, because what happened in Chile is that they tried all this shit and it didn't work. And every time it didn't work because of some obvious reason, they would blame, well, it wasn't it wasn't pure enough. There was something that was interfering with the invisible hand, which isn't even a, like a real thing, you know, and it's the same thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. well, it's not pure communism. We're going to get to pure communism eventually. You know, we'll get there eventually when the fact is that none of this shit is real and works ever because nothing is pure. There's always things that interfere. Um, you know, the invisible hand might, you know, it might have carpal tunnel syndrome. We don't know. That's it. Right. You know, and uh, yeah. that was the thing to me that that uh, it's funny that he wears the Adam Smith ties. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and you mentioned the guy, George Stegler. He's he's the one who um, you have the chapter heading who said uh, in the 1970s, Adam Smith is alive and well and living in Chicago. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good, yeah. it's a good line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really good line. And there's a picture that I include, which I love, where he's wearing a shirt that <laughs> yeah. says Adam Smith's best friend. And he's just got this like most self-satisfied smile on his face. He's he's like so proud of himself. It's one of those t-shirts from like the 1970s where clearly every letter has been ironed yes, on. Yes, hadn't been ironed right? on. You yeah. know, like you used to get at the mall, um, way, you know, way before, even before my time, really. But it's, yeah. it's, it's a very, the book is worth buying just for that picture, honestly. Um, okay, so we're we're heading against the, uh, the hour, so I, I don't want to keep you too long, but I'm curious... Uh, you know, two more things I want to get to before yeah. we before we close. The first thing is in your epilogue, you kind of wrap it with, you know, bringing Adam Smith back as this sort of moral and, and highlighting the moral mm -hmm. and culture, um, those multidisciplinary aspects of him as a yeah, thinker yeah. and how he would be a moral and cultural critic of capitalism mm -hmm. as realized in his name, you know, which is what I yeah. said. If he, if he were alive now, he'd be like, well, what the fuck is going on? So, um, <laughs> you know, talk about that a little bit. And then I, yeah. I and then I will we'll start there and then we'll get to the, my, my next question. Yeah. And please cut me off as I, if I, if I start to like, you know, get on my soapbox about, about <laughs> very niche Smith debates here. We like um, soapboxes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so what I've been noticing about the way in which Smith is portrayed and talked about now is that there is there's a powerful trend of saying, well, Smith isn't just an economist. He's also a moral philosopher. And I've kind of wondered, I'm like, okay, well, what is that doing? And I want to be really clear and say, like, it is 
great that people now care about Smith's moral philosophy. <laughs> it is fantastic that people are also reading the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations. I think a lot of this has to do with um, intellectual trends, like like the way philosophers have discovered or kind of rediscovered, if you will, or at least found new life in the theory of moral sentiments as an alternative to like Kantian uh, philosophy. Um, so Smith has been an incredibly powerful resource for thinking philosophically and thinking about what alternative modes of doing philosophy look like. And I think that's just fantastic. Like just in terms of developing new ways of thinking and new ways of reflecting on past thinkers, that is something we should welcome. I think what's been more interesting is when we start saying, well, because Smith is a moral philosopher and he was a political economist and these two works are somehow in dialogue with one another, what does that mean for us today? Like, how should we be doing moral philosophy and political economy today together? Is there a thing that we call moral economy or like, can we have a more moral political economy? Can we have a moral vision of capitalism? That's where things start to get a bit mushy for me. Um, and I have a couple of lines in the book where I talk about like a really emblematic version of this is from Arthur Brooks, right? Who is former president of the American Enterprise Institute, kind of conservative think tank. And, and he has this great line from like, what, like 2015 or something. And he's like, Adam Smith was the father of free enterprise. But, you know, before he wrote The Wealth of Nations, he wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which is a better book because it taught us, it taught me what it means to deserve free enterprise. Like, it, you know, that that like the questions about distribution and inequality are really only secondary to questions of like free enterprise, which are subject to having them write morality towards our brothers and sisters. And I'm like, hold on a moment. Like, that is not at all what the theory of moral sentiments is about. Like, it's a <laughs> book about 18th century moral philosophy and like what human nature is like and moral sentimentalism. Um, but here you have somebody, and, and he's not alone. And I will say, of course, like, look, he's a think tank person he's got an agenda like he's not out to provide an interpretation of smith's text but i think that it's really emblematic because it shows how easily we can kind of like elide and reappropriate what smith was doing in order to make sense of like what we're trying to do today yeah. when we're freaking out about inequality when we're freaking out about free markets in the wake of the financial crisis or Thomas Piketty comes out with this earth shattering book about capital and we're like oh god like economics is not working free market economics is not working let's go back to the source let's go back to Adam Smith and see if Adam Smith has any advice and we think oh but like Smith wrote this book on moral philosophy like maybe there's a way for us to think morally <laughs> like about free market, capitalism, whatever. I'm being kind of reductive here, but um, the, the point is that like, there are some serious debates among scholars about whether the theory of moral sentiments is a book about what Smith called commercial society, right? And whether there's content in the theory of moral sentiments and in the wealth of nations to provide a kind of like 
moral or ethical defense of the kind of society Smith lived in and the kind of society that we live in. And I'm using that term commercial society very carefully because A, because Smith didn't use the word capitalism, but also because commercial society isn't also very neatly defined, like he uses that term twice. And we've kind of projected um, our anxieties about like capitalism and living in a society that's dominated by consumerism exchange, right? And we have all these concerns about inequality and the morality of inequality. I think we've started to like project those back onto Smith in the hope that like we can find some way to reconcile the like bare economic fact of the kind of society we live in with the like what ought we to do version of moral philosophy. That we've started to read these texts in really interesting and very contested ways. So that was my soapbox. <laughs> okay. That's a good um, that's a good soapbox. It's a good soapbox. Yeah. Yeah. I have one more question before I ask. I just realized you you have behind your head on the bookshelf, you have your book, and then you have, yeah. I think, probably the a working copy of it. And between yeah. those two copies, is that like a like a little knit doll of Adam Smith? Is that what that is? Yes, it's a little crocheted Adam Smith. Oh my god, Smith that is very doll. cute. Where did you get He's that? Really cute. Did you so make there's that? this amazing artist on Etsy, Lauren Zebert, I think is her name. Okay. And she crochets custom philosophers in this adorable <laughs> form and my adam smith doll is just the cutest thing that has ever existed and he's even got like a little bow for his hair and everything yeah he's he's just adorable that's that's fantastic i it took me this whole time to re i was like wait a minute that's a, that's a cute little adam smith crochet yeah. doll um okay so last question you you began this um this project before you even knew that it was a project you were going to write about yeah. what kind of a problem is inequality yeah. And you mentioned that on your soapbox there about inequality. And I think, you know, capitalism, as we perceive it, uh, we've gone in a certain direction, certainly of late, which puts all the emphasis on, you know, shareholder value and not any emphasis at all on really anything else, including yeah. uh, is what we're doing good for the economy? I mean, not the economy, for the climate. Um, you know, are we fucking up the earth? Are we exploiting people too much? Yeah, yeah. Um, there needs to be clearly if if society and the planet are going to survive there needs to be a reevaluation or a tweaking i think of the capitalist yeah. system i don't think you know we're going to overthrow it and have communism or anything else i think it needs to be tweaked in some way to make things just a little bit more level and less horrible how would we do that what do you think do you have any ideas you're asking me yeah <laughs> help us <laughs> Oh my God! Or, or let me rephrase. Then, where do you I, think well, <laughs> this is headed? Where do you think it's going in terms of what people are writing about, what people are saying? Do you see it heading in a different way? Are people in in the field even aware that the system is destroying the planet and we're all going to die in twenty well, years? Let me just start by saying one thing: I know we like one thing not to do is to like assume that Adam Smith has an answer for how we should go about this. <laughs> He did, but he burned them all in the fire. That was the problem, yeah. Um, the kinds of crises that we're facing are so different <laughs> and just of a different scale, like on a planetary and existential scale that Smith could not have imagined. So I, I just think it's a bit ridiculous and be foolish for us to like think that Adam Smith has some kind of answers. I think he has, I think he has really amazing insights into 
um, things like state capture. Um, so if we care about things like why pharmaceuticals are setting prices on certain kinds of products and why our healthcare system is broken, like maybe we should look at the ways in which private interest groups, people with lobbying power, massive corporations are in bed with lawmakers and the way in yeah. which law and wealth get entangled. And I think Smith has really powerful insights in that regard. So, you know, if I were going to be kind of like, what is one baby step <laughs> okay. towards slightly better things is to actually think about the ways in which we we prevent certain forms of of domination in politics but specifically forms of domination by massive private corporations i think that's something that is clearly in smith maybe he talks about the east india company yeah. and how they are wreaking havoc all over the globe and also oppressing people at home because of the way um corporate violence gets entrenched through the political process. So, you know, we get, there are so many examples of this with the American political economy. So I think you know, if we are going to look to Smith for insights on something that I think is tractable, we could start there. I think that's good because the, the East India Company is far and away the most powerful corporation that ever existed. I mean, we, you know, we have things here now in the United States that have power, but like they could like they had the power to raise armies and go to war. And oh, yeah. Stuff. They had like a Navy and an army. Yeah. yeah like Google can't like come to my house with you know, with soldiers and blow it up like legally. Yeah. yeah. They, they ran India for 50 you know, for a while. Yeah. Until but, eventually the it, it went back to the Raj. And I that's something people don't realize. But uh, yeah. So, yeah. That, that that would be a good place to start. Yeah. Now we have to. We're we're recording this. It is now. It's Veterans Day. It's November eleventh. We're gonna wait. I think until after until the end of the month to release this. When is your book actually out? What is the release? November twenty ninth is the official publication day. Okay. Uh, so we're gonna wait until until then until December to 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 put this out. Um, so by then Twitter might not exist, but in, in the meantime, <laughs> um, sad but true. Uh, yeah. You're on Twitter. What is your Twitter handle? I am on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Miss underscore Glory. Um, I, you know, I had Twitter in like 2008 when I was an undergrad, and so that was just a little like nickname that I had. Okay, that's fine. We, we you know, we're, we're we're fine with that. And again. Twitter might be gone it, at, at this rate. I mean, yeah. it's, it's been two it, weeks and he's lost $110 billion. It's pretty it's crazy. Funny, I really didn't want to be on Twitter anymore. Um, this was before the Musk takeover. I was just like, this is a horrible place to be. And like, I do enjoy some of the like spontaneous intellectual connections and also just like keeping up with news occasionally. Like sometimes Twitter puts things out faster than the New York Times does, right? Always. Like, it always and, does. Yeah. <laughs> and also just like seeing what other people are publishing. Like there's horrible stuff and then there's good stuff and cat videos. Um, <laughs> but, but I told my publicist, I was like, look, I, I don't want to have to do this that much longer. And they were like, we totally understand. Like we're not on Twitter anymore. We're not doing social media anymore but your book's coming out in a couple months and now is not the time to experiment. <laughs> yep. Um, and I, I get it. And I've also had the thought, I'm like, funny, Twitter <laughs> might not even exist. 
Right. You're, you're outlasted the, uh, it, it, it's, it's really stunning to me to watch this guy. I think he's doing it on purpose maybe, but if not, oh my God, has anybody's, has anybody's intellectual reputation ever taken this much of a hit? It, oh my it, gosh. It's, it's really, uh, it's I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> uh, I, I, I like the, I, I I'm a f- uh, fond of Twitter. So I I'm sad that he's taken this place that took years and years to develop into this you yeah. know, lovely organic community. And he's just like, fuck it. We're just going to burn the whole thing down because I, you know, I think it's funny, but I mean, the amount of money he's lost him with it. I'm okay with it. (laughs) Well put, well put. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't think Adam Smith would have liked Elon Musk. I think we could end with that. Oh no. And I've actually been thinking about writing a piece and talking to my publicist about this. I just haven't had the time about like what Smith says in the theory of moral sentiments about kind of like our admiration and worship of the rich and powerful. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, yeah, Musk is not, uh, not worthy. Um, okay. So your book is called Adam Smith's America, how a Scottish philosopher became an icon of American capitalism. It's out on November 29th. Lori Lou, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks so much. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossa. Zarina Zabriskie, Marie Kost, and Martha Akuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John, Tally Briggs, Michelle Cantor, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. And until next time, we shall prevail. MSW Media.